to the Wagner Ministries International Podcast. As you listen to this message, our prayer is that you would be motivated and empowered to follow Christ and lead others to Him. Enjoy. God bless you, my friends. This is evangelist Kevin Wagner, founder of Wagner Ministries International, welcoming you to our podcast today. What happens in the book of Acts is like what happens when you throw a stone into a pool of water. First there are small circles, then big circles, then waves of water. Concentric circles move out from the center to spread out as far as the edge of the pool. We see the same ripple effect in Acts. First, Jesus changed lives in Jerusalem when God threw the cornerstone of the empty tomb sharply into the pool of human experience that we call history. Then the concentric circles began spreading to the outside of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and finally outside Israel, where today we see the power of the Holy Spirit change lives of people like you and I as far as Antioch. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this in Acts 11, verses 19 to 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. You know, God has a plan to reach every person on earth with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And friends, you can see his plan begin to work in Acts 11 today. But some of the things that had already happened and the way our lesson starts today makes us wonder just how God is going to get the gospel spreading. Two big barriers to the spread of the gospel are in place in Acts 11. First of all, as we learned in previous teachings, Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, is sitting at home in Tarsus doing who knows what, all but forgotten by the other Christians, and sometimes it almost seems by God too. The other barrier is what we see happening in verse 19, where the Bible says that sure there were other believers spreading around, uh, spread around the land, but they were only telling other Jews about Jesus. Now that wasn't everything that God wanted, not by a long shot. So how then would God get his word out to the ends of the earth? This is a tough problem, but a simple solution. 
and it comes in one word, persecution. Acts 11 verse 19 is a powerful example of an important principle of thermodynamics. For those of you who remember your chemistry and physics, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. As verse 19 starts out by saying, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. The first person who ever lost his life because he stood up uncompromisingly for Jesus Christ was a man called Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, you can read the account of his brutal murder at the hands of hostile unbelievers. But Stephen's stoning was not the end of the nightmare. It continued on and on and on in the lives of the other early Christians until it was unsafe for the believers to remain in Jerusalem in large numbers. So like the dandelion, whose apparent death sends the seeds of new life scattering on the winds of summer, so too the death of Stephen sent Christians around the known world with the seed of eternal life, scattered by the wind of the Holy Spirit. So the Bible tells us that we have excited Christians spread as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now that is exciting news, but verse, verse, verses 20 and 21 get even better because they say, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Oh man, I get excited when I hear about Jesus changing lives. I hope that you do too. And when I hear about the revival that the Holy Spirit was working in Antioch back then, I just love it. And the awesome thing about what God was doing is this. When revival broke out in Antioch, revival wasn't exactly breaking out in the Bible belt of the Middle East. You see, God doing a great thing in Antioch then would be kind of like seeing revival hit San Francisco or Amsterdam or Las Vegas today. Not exactly places where most parents would want to raise their children. And yet, irony of ironies, God chose that city to replace Jerusalem as the center, the hub of early Christianity. I can imagine God was saying, in your face, devil, as he saw thousands of people getting saved by turning to Jesus, because the devil had been having a heyday for some time in that city. Antioch, you see, had quite a reputation. Let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. The city was located 300 miles north of Jerusalem with a population of 500,000 people. But perhaps more interesting and relevant for us today is what was located a mere five miles outside of Antioch, but whose influence flooded the whole city. In Greek mythology, Apollo had a crush on Daphne, but she played hard to get, and so he was forced to chase her around the laurel groves and bushes according to the myth, just outside of Antioch. To commemorate this fantasy, a pagan temple was built where people worshipped the fable of Daphne and which also housed prostitute priestesses. In the first century world, the phrase, the morals of Daphne, referred to a lifestyle and an attitude toward living that was far from God. In fact, life in Antioch in the days of Acts 11 could be summed up this way. 
Syrian Antioch was a formidable place to build a ministry. It was third only to Roman Alexandria in prominence at the time. Known as one of the eyes of Asia, it was the residence of the Roman prefect and the seat of political power for that area of the Roman Empire. The culture of this metropolitan city at the mouth of the Orontes River was Greek. Strategically located 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, Antioch had become very cosmopolitan. But something else had made the very name of the city synonymous with rampant immorality. In this sin city, chariot racing, gambling, and debauchery took priority in the persistent pursuit of pleasure. And controlling the ambiance was the worship of Daphne, whose temple five miles out of the city housed prostitute priestesses. Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne in the laurel groves around what became the site of the temple was reenacted night and day by the worshippers and the ritual prostitutes. The phrase, the morals of Daphne, became descriptive throughout the world of immorality at this time. One classic Roman writer with these words summed up life in Antioch poetically as he reflected on the increasing moral degradation of Rome. The Syrian Orontes has flowed into the Tiber. And yet God chose Antioch to do something powerful and new. As I was reading my Bible preparing for this message, and as I was seeking God in prayer, the Holy Spirit struck me with this great truth. Those early Christians that took Jesus to Antioch, those early Christians that the Holy Spirit used to bring revival to that sin bin called Antioch, they must have been remarkable people. And what made them remarkable, what made them such effective instruments of God, was the way they handled opposition and persecution. Make no mistake about it. Sharing Jesus in first century Antioch would have resulted in a lot of opposition, hardship, and persecution. You don't just enter the eye of Satan's hurricane without him trying to rip you to shreds in the process. But the way these excited Christians reacted to this opposition is what we can learn from today to help us be more effective witnesses for the Lord in our day-to-day -day lives. Friends, think about your life and the bumps and bruises you have received through the years because of your love for the Lord. Think of the opposition, even the hardship, and perhaps the persecution that you have had to endure because you're in love with Jesus. Opposition and persecution are an inevitable part of the committed Christian life. So many of us today can testify that this is true. So the issue is not how to avoid opposition in our lives that results from standing up for Christ and God's truth, Rather, the question is how best can we react when opposition comes our way? Now, that's a very practical question. And I assure you that today the Bible, as always, has some very practical answers. In general, any one of us can respond to opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ in one of three ways. We can be crushed, we can fight back, or we can pray. How many of you can think back in your life and remember times when you have stood up for Jesus Christ at work, at school, at home, perhaps even among your family or friends, and you have been shot down, mocked, ridiculed, or even ignored? As you recall those times, remember how you felt? If you're anything like most people, you probably felt like you just got the wind knocked out of you. You may have felt weak, embarrassed, or disillusioned. 
In short, you stood up for Jesus Christ, received the inevitable opposition, and you were crushed. Now, for some people, this crushing is so emotionally severe that their whole faith is shattered, and they end up falling completely away from God and His truth. For others, this crushing opposition may contribute to Satan's next best scenario. It may intimidate or scare you into silence, content to keep your faith to yourself so that you won't run the risk of being exposed to that crushing hurt all over again. That's one way to respond when we receive opposition from standing up for the Lord, being intimidated into silence and ineffectiveness by being crushed, hurt, or defeated. And sadly, this has happened and is happening to many Christians today. The second way we can respond to opposition is by fighting back. In many ways, this is a natural reaction, the reflex of defense or even revenge. But friends, Christians are not merely natural people. We are supernatural people with a supernatural God living inside of us so we cannot be content with merely doing what comes naturally, can we? Some Christians in the face of opposition do what Peter did when the guards came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are quick to draw swords and fight fire with fire. Well, what was Jesus' rebuke to Peter? And incidentally to us as well, in the light of that response. Jesus said, no more of this. Put your sword away, because he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Now most of us aren't so bold or so brash as to draw a sword like Peter on those who oppose the truth of Christ. Or a gun like the man in Pensacola, Florida, who years ago shot and killed a local abortion doctor. For most people, their way of doing battle is by using a subtler but equally formidable weapon, the tongue. The Bible contains many warnings to Christians to guard the use of our tongues, and for good reason. Probably all of us know of churches and ministries, reputations and careers, families and marriages that have suffered damage, sometimes irreparable damage, because of the way others have spoken lies, misrepresentations, half-truths, or even the truth without the fruit of love. Friends, as tempting as it may be, as natural as it may be, to respond to opposition by fighting back, by drawing the icy blade of harsh words, the Bible is clear that it is, this is seldom the route that God intends for us to take. There are examples to be sure. You can think of Jesus in the temple chasing out the shady businessmen, or his frequent verbal attacks on the Pharisees. Or you may recall Paul's strong words in Galatians 5.12, but these are admittedly extreme circumstances. Generally speaking, the way God would have us respond to opposition for the sake of the Lord would not be fighting back, nor caving in, but rather a third way. Jesus is a healer of souls and spirits and bodies, and he gives a prescription to us in Matthew 10 that will help us to respond God's way when we face opposition in the future. Here's what he says. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. 
Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, you can imagine that the early missionaries in Antioch faced some strong opposition. But the results of their campaigns indicate that they must have responded to this opposition not by being crushed, nor by fighting back, by and large, but rather by this third way, which eventually leads to fervent prayer. You can imagine that many of those early missionaries would have remembered Jesus' words from Matthew 10 firsthand, or they would have heard them repeated by the disciples themselves. And the instruction that Jesus gives is very practical and supernaturally effective in its results. What Jesus obviously knew, and what he wants us to realize too, is that while he says that the fields are ripe for harvest, meaning that many people do have a hunger for knowing God, not everyone does. The spiritual reality is that in any given town, city, or area, some people are ready and eager to accept Christ, while others aren't. Granted, some places have a higher percentage of people hungry for God than others, but rarely does this include everyone in any given place. So Jesus is telling us we need to recognize this. For those people who are not ready to accept Christ and his message, we are to, in Jesus' own words, shake the dust off our feet as we leave their presence. Now, this may sound unduly harsh, as if we're cutting these people off, but not so. What Jesus says in his cryptic allusion after that holds a lot of significance. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, think back to Genesis. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Two old cities that were characterized by their wickedness that was so intense that God was considering bringing judgment on them. But before his judgment fell, God had a talk with his man of the hour back then, Abraham. And you may remember the course of the conversation. Abraham was wrestling with God in prayer, so to speak. And he was pleading with the Lord to show mercy on the people of Sodom. He was interceding for the people who opposed God. He was standing in the gap on behalf of the people who persecuted the believers. In short, Abraham prayed and pleaded fervently to the Lord that God would show mercy and hold back his judgment. If only he could find 10 people in that whole city who served him. As it turns out, God couldn't even find 10. But the lesson in that account still remains true. Our prime response to people who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to be crushed, not to fight back, but to pray for them that God would delay judgment in their lives, that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts up to Jesus Christ, that they might be saved. But Jesus' reminder to shake the dust off our feet reminds us of something else, too. The bulk of our time, work, and effort ought to be invested in people who are eager, ready, and hungry to receive Jesus Christ and grow deep in Him. It's not that we ignore those who oppose, we pray for them and we love them. But don't you know Jesus made us and He knows us better than we know ourselves? And He knows and don't you know it's true too, that psychologically it is draining, damaging, and ultimately destructive 
to spend time day in and day out trying to win people to the Lord who aren't yet ready and may never be. While there are many out there who sincerely are ready for Jesus and who need you and I to bring him to them. The Bible says that Jesus himself didn't spend much time in his own hometown of Nazareth. Why? Because the people there, by and large, rejected him. And he knew that his time on earth was so valuable and so precious as yours and mine is that he wanted to use it as effectively as possible. So he intentionally spent the bulk of his time involved in the lives of those people who were ready to accept him, all the while praying for the others. As I said earlier, friends, these biblical teachings have some significantly practical applications for our lives today, don't they? I encourage you then to reflect on them, read them, meditate on them, digest them, wrestle with them, and let them change you. The early Christians in Antioch did these same things, and God blessed their obedience with the fruit of revival. May each of us be so obedient, and may we in our communities be so blessed with that same fruit of revival in the days to come. As always, my friends, I look so forward to our next podcast, where we will move further into the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit uses His Word to help us walk daily in the power of God. Have a blessed day in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by today's message. For more information regarding Wagner Ministries International, go to wagnerministries.org. And if you need prayer for anything, please email us at prayer at wagnerministries.org. God bless. Thank you.